Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. We are live on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by co-host Weston Williams and guest co-host Kathy O'Shaughnessy. All right, tonight we go inside the huddle with conductor... Michael Christie at Minnesota Opera. Christie led 24 productions over six seasons as its first ever music director, including the world premiere of Kevin Putz and Mark Campbell's opera Silent Night. He's championed opera commissions by composers such as Mark Adamo, Mason Bates, Stephen Paulus, and most recently, Huang Ro, collaborating on the world premiere of An American Soldier at Opera Theater of St. Louis last summer. Plus, this guy flies planes... Then it's the two-minute drill. You get everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land with our team's hot takes on those stories. Later on, Oliver plays Monday evening quarterback on the production of Verdi's Il Trovatore at Lyric Opera of Chicago. And, of course, you can call us on air and get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. We want to hear your opinion on what we're talking about tonight. 847-866-9687. You can also tweet us at Opera Box Score, Weston Williams. Good I'm to see you. I'm in the house. I'm here. Are you f- I'm, are you f- I'm here to help. <laughs> <laughs> are you freezing your buns off, man? Just a little bit. You know, the, yeah. uh, I do have to say, though, I did drive out in the blizzard last night, and I was, I, I was uh, as a Southerner, I was terrified at my, to my very core. But as someone who's lived here for a year now, I'm like, ah, this is nothing. You this can do great. it. Kathy, were you phased by the weather? It was a lot better than I was afraid it was going to be. They were making it sound like a snowpocalypse out there. And so coming out today and seeing the car was only slightly buried under snow. Well, this is, this is what my, <laughs> my wife said. My kids were kind of panicked about the, the snowstorm, I guess. And my wife was like, look, when you check the weather on your phone on the app, they make it sound worse than it is because they want you to check the app more often to look at the ads more often. Ah. They didn't follow that logic. I just thought it was great logic. <laughs> Yeah, it was real <laughs> sneaky. I, I'll have you know, though, that my southern parents did text me several times to make sure I wasn't dead in the snow somewhere. So, uh, as shout have out to my Mom Californian parents. It's the same <laughs> thing. Excellent. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Opera box score on WNUR 89.3 FM. The Cincinnati Inquirer once wrote, quote, if conductor Michael Christie represents the future of music in this country, the future looks promising indeed. At Minnesota Opera, Christie led 24 productions over six seasons as its first ever music director, including the world premiere of Kevin Putz and Mark Campbell's opera Silent Night, and he's championed Commissions by composers from all across America. He joins us now live from Minneapolis. Michael Christie, welcome to the show. How's it going, guys? Uh, you are obviously, uh, a, I think probably what most of our listeners will know you from is the uh, premiere of Silent Night, the Kevin Putz and Mark Campbell uh, opera. We've had Mark Campbell on this show. Uh, when you were premiering it, uh, did you suspect that it would be such a big hit and would enter the repertoire as it has? Oh, for sure. <laughs> I think it was, uh, it was very clear that uh, both of them were really onto something. Mark, in terms of uh, the, the dramatic arc of the whole thing, uh, the, the concept they had of all these short scenes, and then the way that Kevin constructed each of the scenes and took us through the story was was remarkable i think when you're in a world premiere you you aren't really thinking so much about the longevity Mm. aspect but i think we were certainly very proud that um that there were a lot of it seemed like the response was 
shock and awe from the audience, I think, that they were just so surprised that it hit them uh, in such a in such a potent way. The orchestra loved playing it, uh, but the entire cast loved singing it. So I think there there were there were really no there were no aspects of it that we as performers thought would be would be an, uh, a hindrance for it. Do you think that um, uh, what do you think it was about Silent Night specifically that made it such a success um, compared to uh, oh, you've, you've done many, many uh, premieres, new new works. Yeah. What do you think sets Silent Night apart? Well, I think that, um, gosh, I, I just really feel like the the elements that you expect from grand opera work so well together. The that Kevin, well, first of all, we were just so thrilled that Kevin, as a first-time opera composer at that point, had had just welcomed theater into his life. Mm. He wasn't trying to impose something on theater. He was really absorbing the concept of theater and respectful of what it took for the singers to, to create those scenes and what the audience would experience. There were so many times in the rehearsal process where he would just say, oh, no, no, that, that audience, we're not taking them on the right journey. And he would just scratch out whole sections. And hmm. it was just amazing to watch that, that part uh, unfold. So I think, I think when it really comes down to it, he just, he just really proved to be such a creature of the theater. And um, so then it's just up to people's personal taste as to whether they like the music or not. But for the vast majority of people, I think, He's such a chameleon and proved to be such a chameleon compositionally as he went through all the different languages that he, uh, as, as each of the scenes had its own peculiar feeling, um, he, he just he just really, uh, I thought, really hit it. And I think actually as he's gone on, I did the next work of his, which was Manchurian Candidate, you could feel him continuing to evolve. And I think he really has hit his stride with uh, Elizabeth Cree, his most mm. recent opera. So it's just, it's just been a thrill to watch him just embrace theater and, and just really look at it through the, the lens of the audience and the people experiencing the, the full picture. Great. Thanks for talking a little bit about that process. I actually had a question, being a conductor myself, um, to what extent do you feel you've impacted the works that you've premiered? Are you involved with it throughout the creative process, or do you generally see the works once they're complete? At Minnesota Opera, we workshop the pieces. It's just part of the, it's part of the genesis of the work. So, for the for all the premieres that I did here, um, I was involved from the beginning pretty much. Uh, Dale Johnson, the artistic director uh, at that time, um, certainly was the the first person who who secured the story and. and brought the librettists and composers together. But as far as the... I, I've just really loved the opportunity to read the libretto before you can hear a, a, a whiff of the music, and you, you really you imagine where, where the story might go, and then suddenly the composer arrives, and they're, they're creating this, this um, web of music, and you, some of it you expect, some you don't. And then I think over the years, I've just really taken it upon myself to to be an advocate for it, frankly. And I, I maybe this is just a matter of getting older, but um, I have definitely stepped away from just do it as it's written, um, but rather really learn what they've written, try to figure out what they're trying to say in each scene. And in some cases, yes, do exactly what they've written. And in some cases, really challenge them and say, hey, look, if you want to actually achieve this result or this part of the, the arc of the story, then maybe we should think about this. And, and I have to admit, um, and I don't know how composers feel about this, but I've definitely gotten much more in the, in the thick of just challenging to make sure that we actually make, make the highest impact we can and get their and actually make their wishes come true. So, uh, this is George again, Michael, thanks so much for being on the show. It's upper box score. WNUR 89.3 FM. You're a conductor. I'm a director. We get along. How do you approach the conductor-director relationship? And what's the metaphor for that relationship for you? 
you know, I've struggled to figure out what the metaphor is. Um, it's a funny thing because, in a way, your two head coaches um, working at the uh, at the, uh, the same game, uh, and you're 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 you have these two leaders with the same team, and I, it's really just this delicate tug and pull. Uh, it's been really interesting, actually, to have a different relationship with each director that I've worked with, new work or standard repertory. Um, I feel like the, the directors that that have really immersed themselves to the extent that they can uh, in the story, the libretto, know as much of the music as they possibly can, those are the ones that I've just really loved uh, being able to say, oh, I see where they're going with this, and just kind of lean back and keep my mouth shut and just... Um, just to help them. And then there's sometimes when you feel like, oh, actually, I can see they are looking for some input. And then the, 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 those that are sensitive to that and are comfortable with that welcome, welcome that input. Uh, and I love that. I love that back and forth. And I haven't really experienced too many instances where, um, where people have completely dominated. Um, I've definitely had some instances where people were not prepared and I've had to, um, be a little bit more helpful, I, I'd say, to kind of try to make it clear for everybody how we are going to um, fashion the scenes. But that, you know, that happens with every and in, in, in with any relationship. Well, I mean, that's the nightmare, right? Is that, you know, mommy and daddy aren't getting along and they're fighting in front of the chorus or the principals. Yeah, and I definitely make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, but, you know, there are definitely some times where um, and it happens with new work sometimes, actually. I've, I've, I can think of a couple of instances where uh, the librettist was in the room and suddenly you, you just could feel like the director was going in the wrong direction. <laughs> you just had to kind of quietly, you know, lean over and say, actually, the story is this. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you just try to keep that quiet. And, um, yeah, you don't want to undermine anybody by any means because it's, it's a process for everyone. And, that's okay, and 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 sometimes I've I've been I've had an idea, um, and I start to implement, and somebody you know does the same thing. They're like, oh, actually, you know, we, you know, want to make sure this doesn't happen here, and you know, maybe we're pushing that too much here, and and that's just part of it. I don't think any one of us completely owns the whole thing, and that's the beauty of opera. If done well, um, all sides get a get a viewpoint, and we all. Go, we, we all ebb and flow in and out of our areas of influence. And um, as long as you can kind of keep a, a good, positive outlook on it and not feel like you've been stepped on just because someone else's area of expertise is uh, you've <laughs> crossed into that area, then it's good. All right, well, Michael, well, we're going to uh, take a little bit of a commercial break here, but stick our, stay on the line, and we will get back to you and continue our little interview here. Uh, we've got more with Michael coming up right after this. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us tonight on Opera Box Score, America's talk radio show about opera. We are hanging out with uh, Weston Williams Kathy O'Shaughnessy and myself, George Cedarquist, with conductor Michael Christie. He is based in Minnesota, where it's probably just freezing. And we're going to turn it over to Kathy O'Shaughnessy for our next question. Hi. Um, I had a question about world premieres versus standard repertoire. You're a conductor who's had a lot of success with both. 
And I know that after doing some of the world premieres I've done and working with those composers, my approach to standard repertoire has changed somewhat. And I was wondering if that's true for you too, if you could talk a little bit about how the two maybe inform one another. Absolutely. Isn't it wonderful to be able to do both? Because <laughs> you do realize, I think especially with the standard repertory, that those, those creators were humans too. And, and I think sometimes when we do that standard rep, we get a little over fixated on that's a quarter note and that rest is this. And, and, and actually, when you've worked with a living composer, you realize it, well, just keeps reminding me that those little black dots on the paper are just the closest thing that they can get to right. helping us understand what their intent is. And so I've actually found, whether it's Mozart or Verdi, um, that it's actually more freeing to have have had the experience of working with a living composer and see their see the humanity in their process and then having that bleed into just how you approach uh, even the most known standard repertory. Right, that's exactly the experience I have in the sense of um, I've learned to be a little less reverential and thereby more respectful, if that makes sense. Agreed. I completely yeah. agree. I think that's a wonderful way to put it. Michael, looking at your bio, uh, the link is on our website, by the way, operaboxscore.com. You fly airplanes? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so is it, you just do like a, like a little single engine things, go flying around? Correct. Uh, uh, yeah. Do you feel that that, um, how do you feel that your flying informs your conducting and vice versa? <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing about flying is that it's, uh, it's actually a very objective thing in, in what I feel like is our quite subjective art form. Um, so I actually like the rigor of that. Um, I think there's ways you can apply that, but I, I do like that a good landing is a good landing. Like whether mm. you like it, you know, <laughs> it, it's not really up to the judgment of somebody to say, well, I didn't like that tempo or I didn't like that. Actually, if, if those wheels squeak on the ground, you're, you did really well. And uh, I like that objectivity, uh, at least in that, in that area. And uh, Michael, what's up next for you? I know you're heading to Chicago in the new year. You've just survived uh, a uh, Rheingold, I think, in Montreal. Yeah, it was great. What a, what an amazing experience. I've had that Rheingold production now a couple of times. Have you? And uh, it's just it's just amazing to be able to dig into that repertory uh, and and just experience the the totality of Wagner and just the, the, the poetry and as well as the music, just amazing. But yeah, I'll be, uh, next stop is actually Chicago, uh, Chicago Lyric for La Traviata. And I think that's just going to be great. I've, I've only worked uh, with the opera company uh, as far with doing two of their rising stars concerts. So I've been in the pit a couple of times uh, for performances, but never with the main stage. And, uh, boy, I can't wait. I just really can't wait for it. Fantastic. Well, we will definitely be there. I know we're big fans of your work. And um, between our team, we, we go see everything at Lyric. So we're going to be talking about that later on in the show, actually, probably around 9.40 or so, the uh, current production of Trovatore at Lyric Opera. Michael Christie is a conductor of the Standard Repertoire as well as a champion of new works. Michael, thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Have a good evening. You too. Coming up next, we've got the two-minute drill. Everything you need to know from Opera Land in the past week as fast as possible. That'll be with us coming right up. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time for everything you need to know from Operaland in the past week. Placido Domingo's career at the Metropolitan Opera started a few days ahead of schedule on September 28, 1968, when he replaced an indisposed Franco Corelli as Maurizio Inchela's Andriana Le Couvreur with Renata Tibaldi in the title role. Well, his performance last Friday was in the title role of Skiki, and that was uh, Domingo's 52nd role, 695th appearance at the Met as a singer or conductor. Last weekend, the Boston Early Music Festival presented Francesca Caccini's La Liberazione di Ruggiero dall'Isola d'Alcina, the latest in its annual series of chamber operas. First performed in 1625, it's known as the first opera to have been composed by a woman. 
The San Diego Symphony seems to have rewritten the book on how to promote classical music with a new video that's been watched over 500,000 times on YouTube. Link is on our website, operaboxscore.com. Over to the disabled list, Polish baritone Mariusz Kwiecin is out for the rest of the run of Bizet's Pearl Fishers at the Met. He had to be replaced more than once mid-performance. Debutant Alexander Birch Elliott continues to take over. Nicholas Jenkins, Glyndebourne's chorus master, has left after one season. No announcement's been made, but the company's website names Matthew Fletcher as acting chorus master. Jenkins came from Dutch National Opera. He's the second chief to depart abruptly after artistic director Sebastian Swartz. On this day, the anniversary of designer Robert Edmund Jones's death in 1954, the premiere of Ned Roram's opera Bertha in 1973, and plus this year... Baritone Christian Gerard and pianist Gerhard Huber celebrate 30 years of collaboration. That is your two-minute drill. Opera class. Sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score. That's what you're listening to. All right, thanks for hanging out with us on a snowy... Snowy, snowy, snowy telephone Um, lines down kind of night. (laughs) <laughs> it's just so depressing. I, I Here we are, the end of November, and we're already getting four inches of snow. It, what's crazy to me is that December starts this weekend. I can't wrap my head around the entire concept. I can't wrap my head around the fact that the bears are eight and three. Oh, the <laughs> bears. But that's for another, <laughs> that's for another time. Placido Domingo cranks in his 52nd role, his 695th appearance. And, and how did... They commemorate that, Kathy, at the Met. <laughs> they gave him, well, a, there was a gala and all the greats were, you know, were there and that's fa- fabulous. But they gave him a piece of the stage and they dipped one of his old costumes in gold and handed it to him. I mean, there's a certain kind of flair there. I have to give it some respect. But what do you do with that gold dipped costume <laughs> that, that was you can't wear it anymore. That, when I read that, it, it cracked me up so much. Uh, it's, it's, it's like... I could just imagine like Peter Gelb just like coming out on stage, like holding this massive like, gold leaded <laughs> jacket, and just like here you go, uh, this you wore this once. Uh, I I don't know, I don't know why it just cracks me up. And, and well, that wasn't the only gift. The other gift was a piece of the Met floor. So it's like here's your gold encrusted jacket and some floor for you, Mister Domingo. Thanks for being around for the past fifty years. Yeah, no, you see, to my sports mind <laughs> i didn't i didn't think it was that weird <laughs> I, well because uh, hear me out because because okay. if if in sports you get your jersey retired right uh-huh. so right, like right. one you know michael jordan after he finished his career with the bulls nobody wears 23 on the bulls anymore right mm-hmm, the the, mm-hmm. the thing is raised to the rafters that's the equivalent of of one of his costumes being dipped in gold that, that no <laughs> one's going to wear anymore i think you're missing the 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 relevant difference there is the dipped in gold part, George. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, just dunking it in there and just like, here you go. I, I know. It's just a really weird image. And I feel like uh, sometimes the Met sort of has sort of this sort of image problem where yeah. it's like, you know, it's like they're, they're trying to be, you know, sort of the big fancy opera house of yesteryear where they can, you know, uh, dip their costumes in gold and give them out. Uh, and I feel like that's maybe not the thing to be projecting. Although for Placido Domingo, he's been around long enough. If anyone deserves That's a costume, former true. costume of theirs dipped in gold, it's probably him. And of course, when you, when you, uh, you know, have played legendary performances on a, on a soccer field, a football stadium, baseball diamond, they will give you a piece of the turf. So to me, like giving him a piece of the that. stage, oh, yeah, like they'll cool. cut out a chunk of the Wrigley Field turf and they, they gave it to, you know, Ron Santo or Ernie Banks or I really like Sammy the, Sosa. I really but. like the idea that they just probably just like pried up like some like tile in the back somewhere yeah. <laughs> and they're just never going to replace yeah. it. And if every time someone uh, uh, trips in it, they just curse Domingo's name to the heavens. Francesca Caccini is not a name that I am familiar with, Kathy, but this is an important piece for obvious reasons. It's the first opera to have been composed by a woman. What, what was your take on, on this production at the Boston Early Music Festival in, in terms of what its importance was? Well, I have not had a chance to see the production, though I really, really would like to. With Paula Dett leading, it's it's going to be amazing. Um, Caccini is definitely a name you should know, and if you don't yet, 
you will be more often. Mm. She was famously part of the Medici court, which for a woman to be a, a high up member of the Medici court in that era is pretty amazing. Um, and it's true, people in the, in the article that we read pointed out that if it weren't, weren't a good piece, it would have been premiered perhaps, but not then taken up over and over again. And it is getting done quite a bit these days. But my question is, what about the second and third operas by women? And it, we still, we have the first, and that's great to be able to go and find that. But we have to, you know, there's still a lot more to do. She's one of many, and yeah. we, we, keep, we should keep searching. Exactly. Caccini is, well, it's kind of interesting, because, you know, she's been known to be the first uh, a woman composer of an opera for a very, very, very long time. Um, but uh, it really wasn't until I think in the past the past year I think 2017 and 2018 we've had recordings pop up of this opera right. and prior to that there was just like nothing that I that I could find uh, there might be something out there that uh, just didn't show up in the U.S. or something um, but some someone that significant to the history of opera to be kind of a footnote for so long. I think is very much speaks to sort of the the problems associated with sexism persisting in, t in the industry mm -hmm. to this day, um, and I, and and like you said, this is we do have this this first uh, woman composer, and then but there there there's so many others. Uh, for much of the uh, time span of opera, there were lots of systemic barriers for a woman specifically to compose opera because opera is so expensive. People didn't want to put as much money uh, into uh, having a woman composer compose, and uh, people tend to think of uh, the woman composer as sort of a 20th century phenomenon. I think uh, they also think of them as singers who dabbled in yeah, composition. Exactly. I was reading about Carmen, because I'm studying up for um, a trip I'm making semi-soon, um, but it was talking about Pauline Viardot, and it mentioned that she came from a musical family and she was a singer, and there was no mention at all of her compositions. And my jaw just mm -hmm. dropped, <laughs> you know, because that's she's known nowadays. I mean, if you we can't hear her sing, but we can go and we can find her compositions, and that's how we can know her. Yeah, and there's there there are many other composers who just in their days were just you know just pounded to the ground after compositions. I think uh, Louise Bertin, uh, who collaborated with uh, Victor Hugo on the libretto for um, La Esmeralda, uh, based on um, a Hunchback of Notre Dame. Um, she uh, composed, uh, she, she created an opera, a big French grand opera, uh, and there were literally riots in the streets um, because of, uh, because of the public's negative reaction to uh, her, the idea of a woman composing this big grand opera in this style, um, even, even with the blessing of Victor Hugo himself, right. which, is, which is nuts to me. And you see these kinds of stories all over the place, and then they kind of pop up, and then they disappear, and they pop up and disappear, but those stories are there. We can find them. We don't have to rely on new women composers. That legacy does exist. We need to make an effort to refine those operas, refine those works, restage them, bring them back into light, and give them the pedestal they, they need to be seen uh, again and sometimes for the first time. It's Opera mm -hmm. Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. Working our way through the two-minute drill the uh, link to this video just released by San Diego Symphony is on our website, operaboxscore.com. <laughs> it, it's hard, difficult to describe, I suppose, what it <laughs> oh is, but it's... Do you want to take a crack at it, Kathy? <laughs> I don't know. It, the video is basically like an attractive, hip woman who Very is good. walking a first-timer through different aspects of going to the symphony in a very playful way. Um, y you got to watch the thing again on our, it, it on is, our website. It, it has gone somewhat viral, a pinch viral, yeah. a sprinkling of virality, which is always an exciting thing Jeez. associated with classical music. That sounds music. really gross. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little bit, a little bit of right on the romaine lettuce. Um, <laughs> oh. It might be too soon. Uh, I apologize to the romaine growers out there. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a kind of a, I mean, it's a, it's a well-made little, uh, 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 promo. Um, but it is a little, it's, it's a, it's a little bit cringy, but not in the way that classical music ads are usually cringy. You know what I mean? The weakest thing about it is the choice of music in the background. Oh, I didn't even notice that. Okay. What was like playing in the background? So, so, well, well, Wagner, Rider the Valkyrie. Oh, right. Just like on a loop. And it's like... <laughs> See, it's it. The people are good looking. It's genuinely funny. Yeah. The people are hip. It's tongue in cheek, and yet 
the weakest part about it is the music, which is the whole point that you would want to go to symphony in the first place. Yeah, they do. They do mention all these sorts of things that they could be seeing. Uh, I think they mentioned Beethoven. Uh, they Mozart. mentioned Jurassic Park with a live orchestra. Oh, yeah, was, yeah, and then they they play none of that music. They probably couldn't get the rights. The same like eight bar loop of uh, of Ride of the Valkyrie. I love me some Ride of the Valkyrie. Uh, I think, Dude, I think it's, mine, over, it's overdone. I think <laughs> my main on. objection to the uh, ad was um, the sort of like aggressively hipsterification of of the symphony, because um, they're like, oh, it's like going to wearing yoga pants and drinking soy lattes, and very much you know aimed at the sort of the ironic detached crowd, which you know is is a crowd's aim it at. But it is a little because we're we're talking about you know um, Caccini and the contributions of women to opera. Well, and then there's of course other minorities, uh, other races. And this is a very white ad, very upper middle class hipstery sort of target targeted focus. And it's like, well, that's certainly an audience that we wouldn't mind having uh, in a symphony audience or an opera audience. But it's not necessarily the most important one for us to be getting in right now. Well, Kathy, I don't think it reflects the city of San Diego. Do you? I have spent very little time in San Diego, but I cannot imagine that it would be this white. <laughs> that being said, you know, I, when I watched this ad, I didn't know whether to applaud it for knowing its audience or its potential audience or chide it for, for limiting that audience. But I will say, because sometimes you try to do too much. You try to reach too many different demographics right. and you don't reach any of them. I think this did a terrific job of reaching a very particular demographic. And I will say, I read the, some of the comments on Facebook. I know you should never read the comments, but <laughs> I did. And, and somebody else pointed out that the demographics of San Diego do not look like those in the, in the show. And they said, like, well, when we make another one, we'll be thinking about this. And I, I really hope that comes to fruition. Yeah. Like, if they can keep Target like if they can keep a, if they start a series of these kinds of videos targeting different demographics, showing that there are a lot of ways people can come to opera. It could be an amazing series of ads. Yeah. So and I, I fingers think, crossed. I think there's something to be said too for. Um, uh, I mean, it's it's very nicely edited. The the the, it, the videography is well done. I've seen so many symphony and opera ads where the audio is choppy there's weird fade fade-ins and fade-outs it looks like someone made it in like windows media player you know from like 2005 uh just sort of you know ugh, ugh. I, not to call out any particular company <laughs> but uh the lyric opera chicago doesn't have great video advertisements in my opinion and this one was very slick and looked like it came out of someone who knew what they were doing and generally had some sort of interest in putting it up there. You it's, know. A, it's a fair point. You know, I, I try and do this less and less these days of putting the anniversaries of people's deaths in the on this day slot because it's it's a little dark and it kind of feels like you're you're scraping the bottom of the barrel. That said, Robert Edmund Jones has got to be the most important designer in this country in the 20th century. Hmm. And what you need to do, if you are an emerging designer, emerging director, is read his book, The Dramatic Imagination. Because the whole point of that book, which was written in the late 30s, early 40s, is like, all you need to make brilliant theater is a beautiful floor and a single chair and some phenomenal lighting. Lighting, of course, was a recent invention in that time, as was film frankly. Robert Edmund Jones was one of the first designers to use projections in wow. his work. And this is oh, in the really? 30s and the 40s. Huh. And it's all about capturing the imagination of the audience with the absolute bare essentials on stage. And this, this book, The Dramatic Imagination, absolutely changed my life when I read it. So you two, I know what you're getting for Hanukkah this year. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Oliver plays Monday evening quarterback on Verdi's Il Trovatore at Lyric Opera of Chicago. That's next on America's Talk radio show about opera, WNUR 89.3 FM. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. 
Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. Pass or fail, here's Monday Evening Quarterback. compliment how well that intro faded into the anvil chorus there. <laughs> Thank no, you very the much. <laughs> Without the anvil chorus, the anvilless <laughs> chorus, I suppose. Well, um, uh, thanks to creative consultant Oliver Camacho for, for prepping that for us. <laughs> he attended the performance of Verdi's Il Trovatore yesterday, November 24th at Lyric Opera of Chicago. The 25th, I think it was actually, Sunday. Uh, Lyric's revival of the 06-07 season was directed by David McVicker, and it features no less than two Richard Tucker Award winners, mezzo-soprano Jamie Barton and soprano Tamara Wilson. The all-star cast is rounded out with tenor Russell Thomas as Manrico and the highly sought-after opera conductor Marco Armiliato and the lyric debut of baritone Artur Ruchinsky as the Count di Luna. Oliver says that in 2018, it would be hard to assemble a better cast for this Verdi chestnut that's high on melody but low on authentic characters and clear storytelling. (laughs) And truly, he says, an opera this bombastic succeeds or fails on the strength of the music making. And for judging by the singing lyrics, Trovatore is an unqualified success. Kathy O'Shaughnessy, when you look at that roster of people, one name really stuck out for you. Well, a lot of those names stuck out. But you know, as a conductor, I'm a big fangirl for Marco Armiliato. I mean, yes, he's very sought out, but I still think he might be underrated. Um, frequently when I go to big opera houses where you know they have such big-name cast members that they don't often have a lot of rehearsal all in the same room. And sometimes you can tell that there's a lot of talent there, but mm-hmm. it sometimes feels like not everyone's on the same page. I know when Armiliato is conducting, I know that I'm going to feel him bring all those forces together. And he does so with an incredible lightness. That, that, because Provatore, again, it can be long and it can be heavy. And it, he always keeps a sparkle in Verdi. So I have not yet seen it, but I'm trying to rush it this week for sure. <laughs> Jamie Barton was the winner of the main and the song prizes of the 2013 Cardiff Singer of the World competition, already an audience favorite. Here in Chicago, and according to Oliver, she didn't disappoint. Her tone is youthful and clear, but she knows how to add metal to the sound. And she's willing to sacrifice beauty for drama's sake. She's a great actress, physically committed to her character, savage, sometimes delirious, but always in control of her environment, even when she's being manhandled by the Count de Luna's guards. Uh, Jamie Barton, of course, singing the role of Atsu Chena. And it is hard, Oliver says, in the convoluted story to emphasize with any character, but Barton's over-the-top deployment of chest voice and clarion high notes definitely made the audience feel something. That's definitely the challenge, I think, with Trovatore, uh, because it the the story is just kind of garbage, you know? <laughs> I don't know about that. I, I mean, mean, we watch Game of Thrones these days. Well, I suppose so. But There's so much politicking, and so we, we, we should have a taste wedded for it. Well, I mean, it's coming from like a... I mean, if you look at a lot of other Verdi's other operas, you have, you have these very sort of clear goals um, thematically in terms of, uh, in terms of story. There, there's a very strong through line, and uh, El Trovatore 
is just full of plot twists for the sake of it. So having just being an actor, just an actor, not even just not even a singer, an actor in Trovatore is very tricky because mm -hmm. you don't have those strong um, sort of lines of re you don't have these arcs that are really set in there because everything just gets derailed every five seconds by the next revela revelation of who what is and <laughs> it's it, it and it, it also seems very uh, thematically very uh, nebulous compared to a lot of the other operas uh, that Verdi had in his output from that period so really committing to that I think is um, a very tricky thing to do, especially when you have um, sort of the current vogue of uh, these sort of high concept productions, uh, which this in this production is not. This is a very traditional, old and crusty, uh, tried and true, <laughs> <laughs> um, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it, um, uh, kind of production that there's not. They're not really. It's not bringing anything new to the table of what is Trovatore about. But I think in many ways. That's almost the point of Trovatore, is that it's just sort of this big old operatic good time, you know? Oliver says, Russell Thomas, as the title character, had a lot of competition from mustering lyrical Verdi and Cantilena by the time his third act, Aria and Cabaletta, came around. In a lesser cast, Thomas would have been the bright star of the show, but amidst the giants on stage, it was easier to find flaws by comparison. I think Oliver's probably nitpicking here, but he says that Thomas has a bad habit of singing to the wings on stage, and Oliver says he remembers that from Thomas's appearance in Bellini's Norma last year at Lyric. That said, he sings in tune. He's got the power to be heard in the ensembles with Barton and Wilson. A generous singer, solid technique, who comes off as shy on stage. Oliver says he hopes he grows into being more comfortable as an actor to match his formidable vocal gifts. I'm telling you right now, if he's singing into the wings, that's not on him. Mm. That's on the director. Mm. Yeah, definitely, for sure. Uh, and Thomas, I've, I've seen him actually in this role. Uh, I was in Cincinnati a few years ago. Uh, when he when he sang it and uh, uh, vocally he's he's magnificent he's perfect for this role I mean he, he's just uh, I, I do agree with Oliver when I saw again this is several years ago so I'm pulling on various memories that might not be connected to anything anymore um, but I I would agree that when I saw him he did he was a little shy he was definitely more about the voice rather than the acting <coughs> excuse me but as I was saying before you know. With, Trovatore doesn't matter if you can act because it, it, the story's off the wall anyway. Um, <laughs> but I, I do remember that he, I don't think he had any trouble going into the... I think he was facing out the entire time when I saw him. So I think you're right, George. I think that might be a director thing. Um, Tamara Wilson is a goddess, is what Oliver says. He remembers oh. hearing her at the Met National Council Midwest region many years ago. He wrote to her on Facebook Messenger saying she was robbed <laughs> as if he was the only one who recognized her talent. Uh, in 2012, she sang uh, Elettra in Mozart's Adominaire at the Ravinia Festival. And now in 2018, Oliver's glad to report that everybody finally knows how great Tamara Wilson is, especially in this Lyrico Spinto repertoire, Verdi, Strauss, Wagner. She sings with true, belto con uh, excuse me, mm -hmm. true bel canto technique, consistent vibrato speed, smoothly connected registers, and has the ability to increase the volume of the tone without sacrificing beauty, especially the uh, greatest hit aria, Darmol, excuse me, man, can I get it tonight? D'Amor Solali Rosé was a masterclass of vocal technique, jaw-dropping breath control, floated pianissimi to rival Caballé and Lena Genjer. This is, this is big stuff. And that got the second longest ovation of the afternoon. Let's play another little sound clip here before we talk about the next part of the cast.
That was Polish baritone Artur Uczynski from a pirate recording of <laughs> Il Balain made in Verona in 2016. Uczynski is making his lyric debut as Count de Luna and has immediately earned a devoted fan base here in Chicago, at the front of which is, of course, Oliver Camacho. <laughs> he says that he hasn't heard de Luna's aria sung with such long phrases and bellowing masculine tones since Dmitry Vorostovsky. Here's a Verdi baritone. She'll be getting all the work. Oliver implores you to seek him out. It's a voice for the ages and was a huge surprise among such an amazing cast. This is not a name that I know. Artur Rotinsky? Yes. I, I've, I've come across him before. I, I remember being impressed, but I've, I've, only, I've never seen him live. I've only heard recordings and not recordings. There were recordings like that, you know, the, the, the sort of the piratey yes. things. Uh, we're really walking on the uh, the legal uh, <laughs> sort of tightrope here, um, but uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I do remember being impressed, and I I would be I would love to see him uh, at some point. Um, I do really like the um, Verdi baritones. I think are such an when you hear one live, there's nothing quite like it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I, you know me. I'm I'm all about my my Heldon tenors and my Wagnerian <laughs> singers. But but the Verdi baritone is is special in a way that I think even the Wagnerian Heldon tenor is not. There there's someone who can really nail it. Just is just it's so perfect for the music that's being written. It's so so Verdi. It's so it, it's not just an, it's not just an extension of the, the role. It's an extension of who I think. Verdi was as a composer mm-hmm. in his sort of aesthetic and how he heard the world and how he heard voices. Um, and so I, I really hope that Artur Rochinsky <laughs> lives up to that when I finally hear him live. And uh, when we do, I will, uh, I will uh, give you my take. Uh, <laughs> well, we'll wrap it up with Oliver's uh, final summation here. He says, all in all, this production is a must-see. The David McVicker sets still feel relevant, and the bare-chested supernumeraries at the Gypsy Camp are very welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank oh, you, Oliver, for that. Thank extra you, comment. Oliver. That's critical. <laughs> Lyrics chorus sounds like a million bucks. Armiliato flatter singers and cantabile moments, if not anywhere else. The plot of the opera is as confusing as always. No one seems to care. Mm. This is a cast that can galvanize those who believe singing is the most important thing about opera. Well, this is where Oliver and I differ, of course, is that I've yes. seen this production twice before. I've, I saw it at Lyric in 06, 07, and I saw it at the Met, which is where I believe the production originates. And I, I, I would do it a different way, <laughs> right? That, that's, not, that's not what at stake here. here. Here's what I have issues. I understand the brilliance of the cast. Wilson, right. Barton. Thomas Ruchinsky, I Excellent get that. Cast. Or Miliato, I get that. Why this would be part of this season? That's what I don't understand. Do you mean like uh, this particular production? Oh, this particular oh, production. Okay. I, I was why making puppy this... eyes in here. In I, n- I know, like, really? I know, I know. <laughs> Kathy was about to faint over there. Trovatore, <laughs> I get it. But why you would have this particular production that has been on this stage within fifteen years? I don't right. see how this has anything to add to the conversation about art, about the present moment. This is nothing against David McVicker. I've seen shows of his that I haven't liked. I've seen shows of his that I've loved. This is about programming. This is about a programming choice that I simply, I don't, I don't understand. I feel like it could have something to do with, um, obviously, the ring cycle is still underway, um, and the need to have a new production for a new opera every year, I imagine, is probably eating into their funds a little bit. So, so recycling this old chestnut, I think, kind of makes sense. Uh, it, it is sort of the second time we've seen something like that with the, uh, the Adomineo uh, earlier this season. Uh, kind of a very static, very old-fashioned uh, kind of production. I forget who the director was for that um, uh, uh, it was a Jean-Pierre Ponel yeah, production that's right, that's from like right. 30 um, years ago. Yeah, very, very out of date. And it's, it's a little disappointing to see that. For, for me, I think, I think the most disappointing thing is to see this kind of production taken out of mothballs uh, right almost what feels like right after Idomeneo is kind of the same thing. I, right. I, I understand, you know, you want to save some money every now and again. And some of these, I do think that there are some old productions that have something to be said for them. 
Um, I do like, uh, some, for some operas, I really do like the sort of the uh, overindulgent naturalism um, that we kind of have going for this production. But it's... I mean, shouldn't everyone's first turn not be with the Zeffirelli production? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like, there's a place for that, and there's a place right, for that. Right, yeah, exactly. Like, one in a season, that makes total sense. I think you're right, though. So close to a Domineo, you definitely feel it. But I will say, if they're going to bring this cast together, they're really making the most of that. And, and so. again, uh, there is something also to be said for the fact that, at the end of the day, the plot of Trovatore doesn't make sense, so why bother with a new set? <laughs> <laughs> Robert Edmund Jones, Dramatic Imagination. That's all I'm saying. Go back to that book. <laughs> okay. Read right. that book and think about how you might do <laughs> Trovatore. We're going to wrap the show up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Hey, everybody. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight. Wherever you are and however you're listening, whether it's live or on our podcast, really appreciate you spending an hour of your time to talk and think about opera. I hope we all survive the next blizzard, by the way. <laughs> That's my bad call for tonight, is the, <laughs> is the blizzard and uh, uh, and just, you know, sliding all over the roads out there. Be safe if you're listening on the road. Um, stay indoors. Buy milk and bread. Whatever it is you people do when there's blizzards. Kathy O'Shaughnessy, do you got a good call or a bad call? I've got a good call. Thompson Street Opera is has a production coming up of Clint Barzoni's When Adonis Calls. That's opening November 30th. It's um, a, new, a fairly new piece. It just had its world premiere a year or two ago, I think. And uh, this is definitely the Chicago premiere. And they're bringing in dancers and a fabulous cast and ensemble. So not to be missed. My Good Call is something we never even got to on the last segment. There's a great article uh, through the Chicago Sun-Times about tenor Russell Thomas, who is singing Manrico in that production of Trovatore. We're going to put a link to it on our website, operaboxscore.com. He talks about singing the role, of course, but he talks very articulately about race in opera. Russell Thomas is African-American, so I want you to go out and to find that article, whether it's through our website or through the Sun-Times. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is John Williams. Nope, not that John Williams. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. Opera statistics and the On This Day content come from operabase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. Please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho for Weston Williams and our guest co-host Kathy O'Shaughnessy for our guest tonight. Conductor Michael Christie, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera, whether you're ready for snow or not. We're back on Monday, December 3, 9 p.m. Central. We're going to go inside the huddle with soprano Rachel Willis-Sorensen. Plus, you're going to get all your opera headlines and our hot takes on those stories. Join us. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment. <laughs>